You would think at this point I would have got accustomed to the complexities of the book of Hebrews. Uh, But as I stated at the outset of this series, I continue to say this morning, the book of Hebrews is not an easy book to understand. It is not an easy biblical book to unpack. As we've heard it said before, it was written to first century Jews who had aligned themselves with Jesus. And these first century Jews who are now identifying with Christ were being persecuted, were being harmed for their allegiance to Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews, either sensing or experiencing the temptation of these Jewish professors to return to Judaism because of the persecution, writes this book in order to convince them to stay, to not return to Judaism. And so the whole book is an apologetic. The whole book is the author's effort to outline into detail why Jesus is better. Jesus is better than every element from the earlier covenant. He is better than every person, every figure from the earlier covenant. To make this case, the author regularly employs language. Language that's specific to the covenant that God previously made with Israel. Now one of the more common comparisons we see in Hebrews is a comparison between Jesus and the role of the high priest. For instance, by way of review in Hebrews 4, we learn that Jesus was a better high priest because he is without sin. And this is in contrast to all of the other high priests who before they could make a sacrifice for the sins of others, first needed to make a sacrifice for their own sins. In Hebrews 5, we are told that Jesus did not assume the role of high priest by way of his ancestry. He was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. So to be a high priest, it was necessary for God the Father to specifically appoint Jesus. Not appointed by ancestry, not appointed according to his birthright, but according to the will of God the Father. In Hebrews chapter 7, we are told that Jesus is a better high priest by virtue of how long he fills this role. You may remember that Levitical high priests served in their role for a fixed period of time, for a term, if you will. While Jesus serves in the role of high priest permanently. In chapter 7 verse 25, we're told he always lives To make intercession for us. In Hebrews chapter 8, we are reminded that the high priest from the earlier covenant served on earth. While Jesus continues to function in the role of high priest from heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. So that is the the, the flow of of arguments, if you will, from the author of Hebrews for all the ways in which Jesus is a better high priest. And as we wade now into Hebrews 9, the primary comparison between Jesus and the role of the high priest, that the argument and the comparison continues. 
But now, as the author of Hebrews looks to summarize how Jesus functions as a high priest, there is a shift in language. And if your Bibles are open to Hebrews 9, you'll see this shift clearly. There is a shift from using purely religious language to using primarily legal language. Now this, this should catch the attention of not a few people here today because we have lawyers among us. We have former lawyers among us. Uh, we sometimes have a judge who worships with us. We have legal minds and, and legal individuals among us. And, and I feel for you because as lawyers, you are often cast with certain negative stereotypes about the way your job functions. Well, if you've ever been uh, feeling the weight of, uh, I'm a lawyer, but people are hard on me, and they, they suspect certain things that are negative, for the lawyers among us, or if you're related to a lawyer, or if one of your good friends is a lawyer, you may want to write down this passage reference in Hebrews 9. Because a new analogy is entering into the book of Hebrews. And the new analogy is that Jesus is said to be functioning on our behalf as a lawyer. Jesus, if I could have rewritten the sermon title after doing the unpacking and the exegesis, I would have said Jesus, the better lawyer, would be the sermon title for this morning. But by the time I figured all that out, the bulletins had already been printed and it was too late. But look at chapter 9, verse 15. We're told Jesus, or He, is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the author introduces Jesus here as a mediator. But then, if you follow along in the text, he scrolls backwards in the legal process. And he begins to talk about how a last will and testament works. That's verse 16 and following. Where there is a will involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will only takes effect at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So the precise legal word isn't present in the biblical text. But the analogy being made here is that the new covenant begins with Jesus acting as our testator. For the record, I'd never heard that word before in my life. I had to call a lawyer up and say, what is this person called? Jesus is said to be functioning as our testator. By making this analogy, the author of Hebrews is seeking to convey that the benefits Jesus bestows upon his people requires him to die first. And one of the primary benefits, one of the primary things we receive from Jesus, of course, is forgiveness for our sins. But the message is clear in verse 14 and in verse 22 that we cannot receive forgiveness apart from the blood of Jesus. We cannot have our sins pardoned apart from the death of Jesus. 
The benefits detailed in a will can only be dispersed at the death of the testator of that will. For example, according to my will, my daughter is entitled to receive from me a great many things. Uh, There are so many things, so many different things that I've portioned out in my will that will go to my daughter. But at this present moment, she is not in possession of any of these things. Because before Anya can receive any of the items detailed in my will, it is necessary that I would die first. And then upon the death of the testator, it becomes the responsibility of the executor of the will to ensure that the beneficiaries get what is promised to them in the will. Usually a will, it's my understanding, a will will specify who the executor is to be. You need an executor, of course, because a dead person cannot normally execute their wishes. But in the case of Jesus, it's different. Because Jesus has died, and because Jesus is risen from the dead, he is able to execute the agreement that took effect upon his death. It's a unique arrangement to be sure. The death of Jesus on the cross releases the inheritance of God then the resurrected Jesus acts as our mediator or as the executor of his own will. And he makes certain that we get what was promised in the will. So Jesus is presented in Hebrews 9 as being the testator and being the executor. Jesus pledges to do certain things for us upon his death, And then he disperses these benefits upon his resurrection. Stay in Hebrews 9 and you'll see the author continues with this legal analogy right to the very end of the chapter. Where he also presents Jesus as a coming judge in verse 27 and verse 28. So the final disbursement of benefits follows the work of a judge who gives a final verdict, who has inspected the will, who has surveyed the work of the executor, and in in his or her judgment says that it's all in good order, and the benefits are given. What we are told here is that Jesus fills all three roles for us. Jesus is the testator whose death makes available certain benefits to us. Jesus is the executor who labors to ensure that the beneficiaries receive what they are promised. And Jesus is the judge who confirms what each person is entitled to receive. Now I realize as I've looked through this passage and what has come before it, I realize that the author of Hebrews has mixed his metaphors. Jesus is presented here first as a better high priest. And he is also presented as one who assumes various legal roles that benefit us. 
But in all of the details that have been presented, in all of the comparisons that have been made, I don't want us to miss the primary point that is being made. Because through all of these analogies and through all these comparisons, the primary point being made is this. Salvation is of the Lord. If you jump ahead to Hebrews 12 verse 2, Jesus is described as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. In the King James Version, Jesus is said in the same verse to be the author and the finisher of our faith. And the point being made in chapter 9 and throughout the book of Hebrews is that from beginning to end, from start to finish, salvation is the work of God. It's God's work. And that's important because it tells us that certain metaphors won't work. We may find the the comparison with a high priest helpful, the comparison with a legal process helpful, but there are certain metaphors that will not work when we talk about the role of Jesus. For instance, it is wrong to think of Jesus as a kind of coach who shouts encouraging words to us as we aim to climb the ladder of, of religious works in order to gain our own salvation. So it's not the case where metaphorically we climb a religious ladder into heaven and Jesus' role is to cheer us on and to give us instruction as we climb. No. Nor is Jesus like an administrative assistant. An assistant who stands ready to help or to assist in our efforts to gain salvation for ourselves. No, when it comes to salvation, Jesus does everything. He fulfills every role. He does every part. And our hymn frames it beautifully for us. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. We've said this before. This is what makes Christianity unique. This is what makes Christianity stand out and apart from every other world religion. The religions of this world may share some common views in terms of their ethics that they subscribe to. You may look at the particular world religions and see similarities in how they prescribe that human beings get on with one another and treat one another. There are similarities there. But if you ask the question, how do I get eternal life? How do I get to the next level, be it paradise, be it heaven, be it nirvana, if we ask, how do we get to the next thing? The world religions give a markedly different answer than Christianity. Whether you are talking about Islam, whether you're talking about Hinduism or Buddhism, the basic message is this. Here is what you must do in order to reach the next level of your existence. There are some things for you to do, and if you're successful, if you're diligent, you'll you'll get to the next level where you want to be. 
Christianity says there's nothing you can do that will get you to the next level. Christianity says here is what Christ has already done. Here is what has been already completed on your behalf. And he's done this in order that you may have eternal life. I don't mean to oversimplify this, but I think it's important that we understand basic distinctions between Christianity and the rest of the world's religions. You might say that the great difference between Christianity and the other world religions is the difference between do and done. The difference between do and done. All the other world religions say do, do, do. Climb, climb, climb. Achieve, achieve, achieve. And you get to the next level. Christianity says, you're not going to get there. Someone needs to go in your place. We, we need a substitute performer here to go on your behalf. And the good news, the gospel is, he did it. It's done. It's finished. He's risen. He's alive. It's no longer do or achieve or perform. It's done. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus does it all. He's the testator. He's the executor. He's the judge. So the key question that I need to ask this morning, it's a question that everyone reading Hebrews 9 should ask. Does Jesus represent you? Does Jesus represent you? Hebrews 9.24 states that Jesus has entered heaven in order to appear in the presence of God the Father on our behalf. Does that include you? Does Jesus represent you? I recently found myself in a position where I needed a lawyer to help me complete a particular transaction. Very kindly, this lawyer offered to represent me free of charge. As you can imagine, I was delighted by this. I understand that lawyers' fees can be significant. And so I was naturally quite delighted to have this lawyer say that he would look after me, no charge at all. Now, can you imagine, after receiving that kind of offer, could you imagine me saying to the lawyer, Thanks, but no thanks. I prefer to find my own lawyer, and I prefer to pay the full amount for a lawyer's services. Can you imagine someone doing that? After receiving a free offer to have suitable representation, saying, no, you know, I'm just... I'm going to find my own lawyer and I'm going to pay full charge, whatever it costs. In that scenario, it would be strange, if not altogether ridiculous, to turn down a free offer of suitable representation in order to pay your own way. And yet, this is precisely the choice that we need to make which determines our eternal destiny. That's the choice of the gospel in a nutshell. 
Will you receive Jesus' representation? It's a free offer for Him to mediate, for Him to advocate, for Him to step forward on your behalf. Will Jesus represent you? Or are you standing there thinking, no, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to... I'm going to pay it, pay whatever it is, I'm going to do it. Find my own representation, maybe I'll represent myself. Again, I, I don't know about these matters, I only understand what people tell me when it comes to legal matters, but I'm told that in court proceedings, in court proceedings, I'm told that it is highly unwise to represent yourself. I don't know if that's still true today, but I, I've heard it many times over the years that in your typical court proceedings, it's unwise to represent yourself. Well, I want to tell you as a preacher, as, as someone who spends time trying to understand what's in this book, I want to tell you that when it comes to standing in the presence of a holy God, it is a terrible idea to represent yourself. It's a really bad idea to think that somehow at the end of your life, you can represent yourself well enough before a perfect and holy God to get into heaven. I want you to know that's a terrible idea. That is doomed for failure. If we aim to represent ourselves before a holy God, you will never ever be justified. But the good news is a free offer has been made. Jesus who has paid the fine, Jesus who has paid the penalty for your sin, offers to represent you free of charge before the throne of God above. I just want to make sure you all take the free offer. That, they, that we're not so proud that we feel we have to earn our own way or pay our own way. Don't do it. Take the free offer. Don't try and do this thing called Christianity on your own. It's not designed as a do-it-yourself religion. It's designed as a done religion. Everything that's required has already been done. And we simply receive the free offer of Jesus. Have Jesus represent you. Have Jesus be your attorney, your advocate, your mediator, your savior, your brother, your king, your friend. Stay close to Jesus Christ. I'm also told, and I don't know this by experience, but if you get into trouble, you go to your lawyer. You know, and the more trouble you're in, the closer your lawyer is. I think there's something to that. Friends, if you find yourself in trouble, if you find yourself in hard circumstances, Jesus needs to be closer than he's ever been. Stay close to Jesus through prayer. And seek to honor Jesus. The one who's at your side, who never leaves or forsakes you. The one who advocates for you. The one who stands as your representative before the throne of God. Honor Him by the way you choose to live your life day by day. Live for the one who paid the fine. 
Live for the one who paid the penalty. Live in honor of Jesus. Make it your life's aim to glorify the one who did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Thanks be to God. Amen.